Welcome to the GeoMob podcast, where we discuss geo-innovation in any and all forms, be it for fun or profit. Welcome to another GeoMob podcast. A couple of months ago, I was at the first GeoMob in Tel Aviv, and I met Dr. Moti Zohar there. Moti is a physical geographer specialized in geo-information and spatial analysis. His research covers the study of the natural and human environments and the interplay between them, and the potential challenges each environment poses on the other. He also focuses on the analysis of spatial and temporal patterns associated with natural hazards and risks, e.g. earthquakes, floods, wildfires, that sort of thing. And he has an interest in citizen science and volunteer geographic information. So he's an academic working in the geospatial environment. He's working on some really interesting stuff. So when we met... Um, for the first and only time, but when we met, you were talking at Geomob about deriving location from tweets where there are no coordinates. And we all know that some tweets have coordinates, but it's only a small percentage of them. Um, so I was able to understand part of it because your slides were in English. The talk was in Ivrit, and I got words here and there, but the slides helped. But just to get us started... Um, can you explain the challenges of location on Twitter and um, a little bit about what you were talking about at Geomob? Well, actually, the geolocation of tweet can be easily done, provided that, you, that the tweeting user has turned on his location services in, in his mobile phone or uh, the GeoIP cap cap capabilities are turned on. But actually... Uh, this is only applicable for about 1% to 3% of the tweets, whereas the rest of them are, no, are not geolocated. So one has to use other ways, other methods, in order to extract the location. But this is not a straightforward location. Um, in order to do so, we use what we call the meta fields of, that are accompanied to each a given tweet as proxies for the location. For instance, the user location and the user description written in the user's profile or the user mention or links to other followers as well as the body of the tweet itself may serve as indicator for location. However, when we inspect the entire tweet, the entire meta fields, there are certain locations one can derive, one can um, um, yield. For instance, um, a user that London is written in his user location profile is tweeting something about New York, while actually he's visiting Berlin. So we get three. <laughs> so we get three locations, three different locations, and we have to decipher which location actually matters. But this is. But these locations are good because inspecting the um, association, the links, the spatial links between these locations, may help us to understand which or which of the tweets can be considered as newsworthy 
meaning that the user was tweeting about a phenomena when he was actually located close to it. So he's perhaps an eyewitness or a he witness to this look to this phenomena. Right. So so a lot of what you're doing is extracting the location words effectively, the location text from the meta fields and also the body of the tweet. Um sure. Yeah, basically that's that's the idea. So today if I tweet today my profile mentions something about London because that's where I live. The GPS coordinates would tell you that I was in Tel Aviv and the last three or four tweets might also tell you that I'm in Tel Aviv because I might be talking about that. And then I could be talking about something that's going on in China. For instance, yeah. Sure. Yeah. So that's the challenge. So how do you start with how do you get from the text that's in the metadata and the body of the tweet how do you turn those into location well it's not all, it's not only the text it's also the other meta fields we break them down into what we call tokens meaning that we uh, we exclude any characters that are not indicative of content for instance spaces and hyphens and, and, and numbers and emojis and all the all this stuff and then once we break it down we reference those tokens to a well-known um, list of uh, geographical indices the, namely gazetteers like the open street map or like the geo names gazetteers and then we match we try to find matching which is also complicated because if the word the token new york is written it can be written in many in many ways it can be writ- written with one space between the new and the york with a hyphen with double space with no spaces at all so one has to um to find or to resolve many op- many possibilities in order to find the exact matching right So once you found those um and that's the same problem that we have when we're geocoding you know that you have to normalize the text and then use that text to look up against a master list that you've created um whether it's open street map or something else um so now you've got these different locations um that have come from from the different meta fields and everything um how do you now prioritize those to try and work out where the person is well uh, we com- we compare them we are we are in- interrogating the spatial analysis between those tweets um if in case a user the in case the location of the user the gps location is quite close to the um the location all locations can be can be more than one that the user is tweeting on we found out that in many cases um it 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 is an indicator an indication that the user is actually located where the phenomena occurred right 
Okay, so this is actually, because what we're interested in is not where the user is, but the location of what they're talking about. Um, yeah, main, not, but not always, because we, we are also interested in, in um, resolving or in filtering fake news or rumors and, and a user right. that is not located in, he, in the, the area of the phenomena might, might, not, might be messaging or transmitting other messages which are not, where they not be accurate at all. I get you. That's interesting. So, um, yeah, so that's a, a way of at least indicating that this may not be a well-informed user talking about a phenomenon in another country or another city. Exactly. Got you. Okay. So, but you must have a, you must have a, how do you do this comparison? Explain to me. Or, um, you've got no coordinates. So you've got... Yeah, I should go ahead, please. You've got no coordinates. You've got the location in the profile, you've maybe got a location that they're talking about, and maybe you've found a third location somewhere. Yeah. Um, once we have these locations, these three or four or maybe five locations, um like I said before, we interrogate the special, uh, special relation, the distances between those locations. And locations that are far away, like one in Berlin and one in New York, for instance, or one in Berlin and one in London, are excluded from, from, the, from the analysis. Um, we must take, well, we interrogate millions of tweets. And we don't, we don't need all of them. We don't need all of them. Um, sometimes or occasionally, only a few dozens um, are, are quite enough. So we uh, move or remove all the irrelevant tweets, leave all we, uh, the, the tweets we need, and we have, um, we have the ability to portray quite accurately the spread of the damage, the spread of the sentiment, uh, cascading events, and, and so on. Okay. So you said before that only between 1% and 3% of tweets are actually have got coordinates. Um, how much do you think you can enrich that using this technique? Um, about between 15 to 20%. It depends. Wow. Yeah, it depends. It depends on the quality of the tweets. It depends on the community that is tweeting. There are other cultural and social factors. For instance, in the United States, um, tweets tend tends to be more, well, in relation to natural hazard, tends to be more accurate, for instance, because we have tested other uh, phenomena in the United States. And in Israel, for instance, uh, you get a lot of noisy, noisy um, tweets and messy tweets, but about fifteen percent, which is okay. five times double. Five times. That's that's pretty impressive. That's pretty impressive. So, um, 
you must get lots of slang and misspellings and everything. Uh, how do you deal with all of that? Um, what we did in, in late in our recent um, studies is we used the Levenstein distance algorithm, meaning that this algorithm is uh, inspecting two, two strings or two topics. I would say one is the topics that we have extracted from the tweet, and the other one is um, a location, a given location taken from the GeoNames or the OSM or other gazetteer. And this algorithm counts the number of replacements or the number of changes one has to do in one string in order to achieve a full uh, resemblance to the other one. So if we get a lower score, it means that fewer few replacements had to be done. And if we get a higher score, it means that a lot of replacements, a lot of changes has to be done, meaning that those strings are not equal, are significantly okay. not equal. So in the example of New York, um, if you take out the space between you and York, um, that's only one change you've got to make, which will give a pretty low score on this. Exactly. But we are, but about the spaces, we are pre-processing because before we, before we implement the Levenstein distance algorithm, we remove out all these spaces, double spaces, right. with, with trim, tokens, hypens, commas, all, all, all these stop words are taken out. Got you. Okay, so so you've done this, and you you now know that you're getting not pinpoint location, but broad location, city level location, probably. Is that about right? Yeah. More um, or less. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And if you're reporting on natural phenomena, which is the area that I know you're interested in, city level for not city level data, or maybe north and south of the city level data will be pretty useful to you. I mean, certainly, um, you know, if we're talking about wildfires, that's as close as, you know, a wildfire near Los Angeles, you don't need to know which side of Los Angeles they're in to know that their, their information is going to be relevant to you, probably. Um, yes, um when we, are, when we are talking or when we are inspecting um, a phenomena like a, a wildfire, the cascading events are extremely important because the focus of the fire is moving uh, in accordance right. to wind directions and other, and other natural parameters. So we might, we might, we would like to know, we would like to, to see where the phenomena uh, propagates. Right. So south and north and west and in the center and out of the center, even if that's approximate location, that would be perfect, uh, in perfect indicators. So if I remember correctly, um, you did another study um, of the wildfires around Haifa in 2016, um, which involved a lot of neuro-linguistic programming and extracting location from, from Twitter feeds. Um, can you explain that to me without um, getting into 
complex formulae and geometry and algebra because I'm not going to understand it, Motti? Um, well, ba basically, we have acquired a uh, few millions of tweets from Twitter that are related or that were broadcast during that period of, of wildfire. We have manipulated those tweets using machine learning and topic modeling algorithms, which basically um, classify those tweets into relevant and not relevant um, using tagging or, or human, human classifiers, and then geolocated those tweets, uh, as I explained previously, and portray them on the map. Then we, we use the spatial temporal inspection, meaning that we are inspecting the, the distribution of the tweets, but not only the distribution of the tweets, but also the temporal uh, distribution. Gotcha. This, this way we, will, we, we were able to, uh, and to inspect or to examine, to detect sentiment in the center of the city and then the propagation outside into Akko, north of Haifa and southwards into uh, towards Zichron, south of Haifa and so on. Okay, so yeah, that makes a big difference, isn't doesn't it? If you're actually looking at in time slices by the hour or something, or um, you're seeing a moving picture as opposed to just a mass of tweets that are all appearing on top of a map and aren't really telling you very much about the evolution of the event. Um, can can you do that in real time, or is that only? I mean. At the moment you did it, you, got, you said you got a few million tweets from Twitter. Um, could you do this in real time if there was an event going on? That's an excellent question, uh, Stephen, because the, 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 short, the short answer is yes. The long run <laughs> depends, <laughs> depends, on, depends on infrastructure and depends on, on other facilities and services, but we can do that and actually... One of the major one of the major motivations for such uh, a research is to provide decision makers and first responders um, a near I would I wouldn't say a real time but a near real time picture or a near real time layer of information that does not exist in the classical sensors because sometimes a person or a citizen is looking outside the window uh, in his apartment and he sees fire and he, first of all, he picks up the phone and calls the fire department and then afterwards he's broadcasting it into his followers. Oh, look about that. Yeah. There's a huge fire in Haifa in this location, in that location. So it's, it can be an important and really vital information to manage um, a catastrophe, a city-scale catastrophe. Presumably, the ch a challenge that you're going to have to overcome is that you have to, from the millions of tweets, you have to extract um, the ones that are relevant. And when you're doing that retrospectively, you can build... Um, 
uh, machine learning, uh, neuroling- neurolinguistics. You can build a model to extract the tweets. Um, but if it's going to have even near real time, you have to be able to sort of almost start that model the moment you've got the first notice of the event and tune it as you're going, don't you? Um, sure, we have to build this model, and this model has to be on air, meaning that um, we are training the model to use a lot of tweets, and once a new tweet is coming, is was broadcast, this tweet immediately gets into that model and filtered. And the classification, the classifier that we have inspected is extremely high because of that problem. Because we wanted to make sure that the tweets that we are using are in high uh, probability related to that event. So, so tweets that we thought might be relevant or maybe can be relevant, we immediately moved out. Right. So presumably the first filter is going to be a geographic filter because if we were talking about a wildfire in Haifa, anybody who's not within the greater Haifa area, um, their, their input isn't going to be relevant. You know, I mean, somebody in London talking about, oh, did you see there, is, there are wildfires outside Haifa? That's not going to really help at all. Of course, he might be retweeting other tweets, or he yeah. might be he might be listening to news or reading newspaper or web websites, and he is just conveying data rather than uh, being an eyewitness or reporting of the phenomenon. Right. Okay, so this isn't easy, is it? <laughs> no, it's no. not. It's it's the world, <laughs> the world of uncertainty. Right. But uh, we have to learn to deal with uncertainty in all sorts of things. Um, yeah, yeah. We tend to think with geography um, and GIS, you know, we think of points that are precisely positioned and we think of polygons which have got hard edges to them. You know, we describe things in these terms, you know, and in fact, we almost need a geography of uncertainty, which says, well, this is sort of near and it might be, but it might not be, but it's still better than nothing. Yeah, it's sort of fuzzy geography, something like that. Yeah, yeah. So when you were doing the study on the um, on the Haifa wildfires, um, how did the geolocation work feed into that analysis? Um, well, <laughs> um, we have, we were, we were manipulating those tweets and on, in parallel, we got actual reports from, from, uh, from the, from the, from the, from the municipality of Haifa. So we were able to compare between our findings and the actual occurrence, the actual, um, the cascading events, I said that right. previously, yeah. because there were lots of events. The fire started in the west of the city, and then because of the wind, it moved about a day and day and a half toward the east side of, of Haifa. 
and our, our results or our findings were partially matching those these trends. Obviously, we have to do better. Obviously, we have to improve ourselves. But as preliminary results or as preliminary indication, we are quite satisfied with the, with the findings. And this has got in, you know, I mean, I was just thinking is about this and it's got fantastically wide application. I mean, if you remember um, Ushahidi, if you remember that, um, which was this sort of mapping based platform that I think it started in Kenya during um, the racial tensions and people were rec- or was it the racial tensions or the election problems or something? But it was a citizen reporting platform where people could report by using either SMS or by using a website, and you were getting observations reported um, using those platforms. And of course, and it was very, you know, and it had some amazing impact, you know, because it certainly provides accountability in social situations. Um, as you said, it provides another source of information in an involving natural disaster. Um, and, of course, you're not asking people to go and use another website. They're using the social media that they're already familiar with. And um, so it's got a lot of application if you can make it work. What difference does language make? I'm guessing, um, did you work in English? Did you work in Ivrit? We were working in English and in Hebrew and in Arabic. Right. And, well, the differences are mainly practical. They are, they are much more uh, libraries and source codes and, and code snippets that are associated with English characters, but Arabic and Hebrew uh, are catching up. <laughs> right. And are there... I mean, do you get more misspelling in, I'm guessing if you're in, you're doing this research in Israel, you're going to get more misspelling in English than you would in Hebrew? Um, yes, but I get a lot of misspellings in Hebrew as well. People use, <laughs> people use slang, people use short abbreviation, people use, well, it's, Twitter is a, it's a free and open and fast platform. Yeah. People write and then immediately send. It's not like Facebook when uh, most of people are sitting in, in, in front, of a, front of a computer late in the evening and write a long and very tedious posts. Twitter is much faster and quicker than other platforms. So do you think that using Twitter like this, it could become a tool for gathering real-time data? Outside of, outside of a wildfire, I mean, you know. Sure. There's, there's, the, there's the question, there's always, there's always the question, if, uh, let's say, if uh, an earthquake occurs in California uh, and a user is tweeting about this earthquake from California, and another user in New York is is his follower. What what uh, wave will will arrive first, the seismic wave 
or the tweets itself. So, <laughs> but I think, but I think to be, I think that Twitter has a lot of potential. I don't know what, what will be, uh, what will happen once Elon Musk will um, accomplish his takeover of, of Twitter. But more communities uh, are getting into Twitter. The technology improves. The websites and the application is becoming more friendly. And I think a, a massive uh, additional users will enter Twitter in the next few years. Okay. So I've just remembered that you said you got a few million tweets from Twitter about the wildfires. Um, can anybody get hold of tweets from Twitter or is there an API? How do, how do you go about it? Uh, first of all, um, there's a possibility to buy, actually to purchase tweets. Um, this is this is the method that we use in this um, research. We have determined uh, search keywords, and then we, we have purchased tweets. But Twitter has opened in the last, I think it about it was uh, yeah, half a year ago, a few months ago. They opened an academic track, meaning that they have opened the entire archive of Twitter since 2000, 2006 to academic and research usage. You are filling uh, bureaucratical forms and applications, and you apply for this academic track, and you get it. But other people can have an API, can um, question, can search, or can query the API, but they are not uh, exposed to all the, to, to the entire tweets. Only about 1% or 2% are brought back from this API. So no, no news for, for, for people that, that don't have money or that are not within the academic track or the right. scientific track. Okay. So we need to wrap up, Moti, because I've realized, you know, as it was inevitable when we started talking about my two favorite subjects, Twitter and geography, you know, I mean, I could go on all, all evening. Um, what are you working on now? Are you still working on Twitter and geolocation or are you on other stuff? Yes, I'm still working on Twitter. I'm working on the sequence of earthquakes that occurred in, in Crete uh, between September uh, 2020, 2021 and till these days, actually. The last, the last um, uh, earthquake was about three or four days ago in Crete. And I'm working on avalanches in Colorado and other um, earthquakes within Israel, in the north of Israel. Everything okay. is related to tweets. Okay, great. So, Marty, I'm sure there are going to be people who want to ask you questions, who want to find out more about the work you've done, and maybe um, some of my academic friends are going to want to collaborate with you. How should they get in touch with you? The people can approach me via my, my mail, my university mail, moti.zoa at univ.haifa.ac.il, or via my Twitter account, which is motizoa without any 
Moti Zohar, one word, or my personal <laughs> website. Just uh, click we'll Moti Zohar in Google. Right. Um, we'll put all of that into the show notes, so anybody who wants to contact you will be able to contact you. Moti, it's been an absolute pleasure. I just have to say one thing to you, right? Um, when I went to Geomob, I stood up and I talked for two minutes maybe in Hebrew at the beginning of the Geomob to welcome people. You've just been on a podcast with me for over half an hour, um, speaking brilliant English. You have my absolute admiration and my thanks for all of your time. And it's been great talking with you. Thanks very much. Thank you, Stephen. It was a real pleasure. It was a real pleasure. My pleasure too. Take care. Thanks everyone for joining us today and listening to the GMOP podcast. Hopefully you've enjoyed the discussion. Please don't hesitate if you have any feedback for us or any um, suggestions for topics that we should uh, cover in the future. You can get the show notes over on the website, which is at thegeomob.com. While you're there, if you're not yet on the mailing list, please do get on the mailing list where we once a month send out an email announcing future events, summarizing past events, and just generally sharing uh, events that you may find of interest. Um, you can also, of course, follow us on Twitter, where our handle is Geomob. Um, you can follow Stephen at Stephen Feldman. You can follow me at Freifogel. Um, you can check out Mappery at mappery.org. And of course, if you need any geocoding, please check out my service, which is opencagedata.com. We look forward to you joining us again at a future episode and, of course, seeing you at a future GeoMop event. Hope to see you there soon. Bye.